It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away, and those, for, and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So I don't know uh, how many of y'all saw it. I know, I'm sure several did. I know Hazel did. Uh, I see her back there. Uh, the coronation of King Charles uh, that occurred a few months back. It was really uh, kind of fascinating, what, wasn't it? You know, from the very moment that that carriage, I mean, you talk about a tricked out ride. That is a tricked out ride right there. You know, from that, from that carriage to the, you know, the grandeur of the Westminster uh, Cathedral, all the pomp and circumstance, the, the moment when that crown, which looks like it weighs 50 pounds, I mean, I felt sorry for the guy after a while because it looked like his head was like, ugh, but it's so, you know, so huge. And all that was involved, the, the grandeur of that ritual and that procedure, it was incredible. Uh, to me, one of the more, I think, engaging moments, the more uh, you know, sweet moments was when uh, the, the crown prince, uh, William knelt before his father, now the king, and he he took vows where he swore fealty to his king. Uh, really neat to see all that. How many of you were alive? And well, maybe I ask it like this: How many of you remember when Queen Victoria was crowned? The coronation of Queen Victoria. Do any of you remember that? Raise your hand. It's okay. That just means you're respected. Sorry, little one back there. You weren't alive back then. Okay, I know a couple of you were, but you probably don't remember it. I mean, for most of us, this is the first event like this that we've ever really seen that we can remember. And I know that it was precious uh, to the British people. Uh, it was, it was, I kind of lived it vicariously when Hazel returned from England. But let's be, let's be frank. For most of us as Americans, um, a lot of the significance of that day is kind of lost on us. Um, when you really think about it, as Americans, uh, our allegiance is to you know our our state and our state constitution and our nation and our federal constitution. We don't bow to our political leaders. I mean, we're not going to get on a knee before you know Senator Rubio or Congressman Hosey or President Biden or any of those guys we just don't bow to these fellas and these gals why because they work for us we have a totally different mindset when it comes to this idea of fealty and allegiance it's just not part of the american ethos but i do think that as christians 
we could kind of appreciate what was going on there because in another sense, we do bow. Because everyone who follows Jesus is a member of his kingdom. And we bow before a king and we swear to him our allegiance. See, for us, Jesus is the one true king. And he is building his kingdom in heaven and here on earth. Now, his kingdom is different. His kingdom is not built through violence and force, but rather through love and grace. His kingdom is established and grows not through power and might and wealth, but through people and through a covenant community, which we call the church. At Covenant, we want to see God's kingdom growing in us, becoming more of a reality in our lives, so that it's more natural for us to bow the knee spiritually, figuratively, in our lives to our king. We want to see that kingdom growing in us. We want to see that kingdom grow through us and out and throughout this world. This desire is captured in our mission statement, which is to bring gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. Micah 4, this Old Testament passage, gives us a vision and much-needed encouragement for why we should pursue this kingdom and this mission. Let's begin in verses 3 to 7 as we examine the beautiful vision of God's kingdom. Now, to set the context of the book of Micah, this may be a book that some of you are not very familiar with, um, let's level set and set some context. Let's go back to history. Israel was a nation that ultimately has a civil war and divides into two after the death of King Solomon, the third king of Israel. The northern kingdom, they keep the name Israel. The southern kingdom, which is 10 tribes, the southern kingdom, which was primarily one tribe, a little another tribe, was Judah. And so the southern kingdom is Judah, the northern kingdom is Israel. As is common even in the United States, the northern kingdom was evil and wicked and more apostate. <laughs> I mean, it's biblical, right? They went off the rails very quickly. They apostatized. They, they you know, I had to get that in there, right? Uh, so <laughs> they, uh, they, they, they worship Baal. They have their own little temple, uh, and, and it's just wicked. It's evil. And very soon, the prophets, like Isaiah and Joel and Amos and Micah begin to prophesy that judgment's coming. But now, the southern kingdom, while it was not as wicked, as quickly it was still on a glide path to end up where the northern kingdom was. The, the only difference was is they had a few kings that stepped up who were godly men, and they led the kingdom to repent like Josiah and like Hezekiah and some others like this. That's the only difference between the two groups. And so Micah, who lives in the southwest corner of the southern kingdom, he sees what's going on in the north. He sees what's going on in the south. And he knows through God's inspiration how this story is going to end. And so this book is a warning not only to the north, but primarily to the southern kingdom of Judah that judgment is coming. You see, what happens is in 721 uh, BC, God raises up the empire, the Assyrian empire, and they come in and they absolutely devastate 
the northern kingdom. They, they obliterate it. They destroy it. They take all the people that they don't kill, and they remove them, and they scatter them throughout the rest of their empire. One of the cruelest empires to be ever exist in human history, the Assyrian Empire, God puts them onto Israel as judgment for their idolatry. But they come on down to the southern kingdom, and by God's grace, miraculously, he delivers them, and they don't destroy Jerusalem. They don't win. Their, their king, their emperor ends up dying. It's a great story in the Bible of God's deliverance, but the glide path is there. And, and, and God knows how this is going to end, obviously, and Micah, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is saying, hey, this is not going to end well. What was going on was that the politicians were corrupt, and the, the court system, you could buy your way out of what justice required. Uh, even the prophets and the priests would tailor their messages to the politicians and to the populace based upon how much coin was put into their pocket. And so in Micah chapter 3, he lowers the boom. He says, judgment's coming, and here's why. Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? In other words, should you not be a people of justice? That's not the case. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of the temple a wooded height. Judgment was coming to Judah. And those who were true to God, who were serving and worshiping their Lord, they knew it. They could look and they could read the tea leaves. They could see what was happening around them. And they were discouraged. You can understand that. They were filled with despair. All they saw was the injustice in the land. All they heard was the dozens of people who were shot every weekend in their cities. Oh, no, he said, that's us, right? All they, all they saw was the, the poverty and the abuse and the way people were turning what was good evil and what was evil they called good. We could understand why they would feel defeated, discouraged, and despair because we see this happening in our own world around us. And because of the events in our own life and in our own world, discouragement can set in. And, and we, can, we can develop an outlook that is actually not healthy, and it's not based in reality. And that's why as Christians, as believers, when we look at our world, we have to do so through the lens of the Bible. We need God's vision of what is going on in the world, and we need God's vision of what the world is going to look like when he is fully done with his plan for restoration. And the great thing about a passage like Micah is that at a very high level, God gives us a perspective on what is coming for our world. And the end of this story is a beautiful vision, even though we may be in days that don't look very beautiful. And so he says, there's a day coming, verse 3, where God will judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. You know, those words are engraved into the building of the United Nations headquarters. 
I have news for you. The United Nations is never going to bring that day about. Humanity will never bring this day about. This is something that only God can do. But his promise to us is that there is coming a day when there will be no more war. Where we will only know peace. There's coming a day when we will never see our sons and daughters go away to come back maimed or in a casket. There's, never, there's coming a day when the strong men of this world who plunder and rape and pillage and imprison and abuse fellow citizens and fellow nations, those days are coming to an end. There's coming a day when there will be only peace, when only righteousness will be known in the land, where holiness will reign, not chaos. That day's coming. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. There's coming a day when children will not have to practice active shooter drills. There's coming a day when people will be able to gather and celebrate life and enjoy one another, and they don't have to keep an eye out for a mass shooter who rides by in a car and unloads a clip 30 rounds in just a couple of seconds. There's coming a day when everyone has plenty. There's coming a day when children all around the world are not starving to death. There's coming a day when everyone will be truly satisfied at the deepest levels. There's coming a day where there will be security, real security, not fake security, not peace in our lifetime kind of security. Thank you, Neville Chamberlain. None of that kind of stuff. True security and safety. There's coming a day when no one will ever live in fear again. That day is coming. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who've been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forever and forevermore. There's coming a day when the nobodies and the castaways of this world, Jew, Gentile, pagan, doesn't matter what nationality, from all four corners of the world, all the discards and the castaways of this world will be loved and restored to a place of honor. There's coming a day when God is going to reign over this earth in every conceivable way imaginable, and it will last forever and ever. That's the plan. That's the vision that we're to keep in front of us even in days where our hearts are filled with despair and in those days when our hearts are filled with joy. Whatever the end of the continuum we find ourselves, our vision is supposed to be on what God is doing in this world and how this story is going to end up. It's given to us passages like this to encourage us, to empower us, to Help us maintain our perspective on what's going on around us so that we can know the times and serve our king well. Now, of course, when we look at this vision, it's a beautiful vision of what will one day be. The big question is when, right? When will the kingdom come? And this question has fascinated I think Christians in America, especially American evangelicals, British evangelicals, quite a bit for the last 200 years, and there has been all kinds of theories and answers as to when the kingdom will come. 
Um, many Christians through the decades have gone off the rails seeking answers. They've, they've made the answers to this question much more complicated and complex than it needs to be. In fact, a lot of fog and mist has been created around this question by the, the creation of different theories and ideas. You know, a verse here and a verse there. What does that tent infected toe of the beast of Revelation actually mean? And before you know it, you have a theory that would confuse Confucius, right? And that's what happens. Instead of just looking at the clear passages of, bio, of the scriptures, instead of just listening to the clear words of Jesus himself, when is the kingdom going to come? Well, look what Jesus said at the very beginning of his... Well, first, let's look at Micah. I mean, verse 1 gives us a clear answer. In the last days, right? In the last days, the mountain of the Lord. In the last days... The people from all over the world will stream there to worship. And so then that question arises, when is the last days? And that's, of course, where so much of the confusion arises because people you know, take these verses from different passages of Scripture and they weave together theories and they say, that, well, the last days have to, you know, it's 1,000 years from now, it's 5,000 years, 10,000 years from now. We don't know it, but, you know, it's, it's, it's when the, the pear tree turns brown and the branches droop in the south wind and the geese start flying north for the winter instead of, I mean, you know, all these different ideas that are out there, okay? Instead of listening to just what does Jesus say? What did the scriptures say? When is the when are the last days? Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is near you, people. It's right here. Repent and believe. Oh, that's interesting. Later, when the religious leaders are asking him, are you that king promised to us? Are you the Messiah that's mentioned in Micah chapter 4 and a few verses later in Micah chapter 5? Are you that guy? And what does he say? If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If the kingdom comes in the last days, and Jesus says the kingdom has come upon you, when did the last days begin? When Jesus stepped onto the stage and proclaimed the kingdom. Remember when Pilate looks to Jesus and he says, they've got this sign, they, they don't want it to say the king of the Jews. Are you the king that is been, they're talking about? And what does Jesus, does Jesus deny it? No, he accepts worship as the king. And church, when the king comes, the kingdom has come too. Kingdom has begun. It began with Jesus. It was inaugurated with him. The Apostle Peter understood this in the, his sermon at Pentecost. And as the, the Israelites and Jews in Jerusalem were looking at what was going on, and they thought all these people were drunk, who were having visions and speaking in languages that were not their own and preaching and proclaiming the, the word of God. Peter says to them, This, what you're seeing here, is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all the flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. What time did Peter identify that they were now living in? The last days. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these, in these last days, he has spoken to us 
by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We've been living in the last days, church, for 2,000 years. We began living in the last days the moment the king came. When the king came, the kingdom was inaugurated. It began there. And since then, we have been in a phase of kingdom growth, where the kingdom is growing and expanding. This kingdom has begun because Satan, Jesus says, I cast him down and I have plundered his kingdom. It began then. And it's been growing ever since then. The kingdom is not something that begins sometime in the future. We're in it right now. It will be consummated in the future. The Micah 4 picture is what it's going to look like when the king is done with all of his kingdom work. But don't make no mistake about it. We are in the kingdom and we are part of the kingdom. And that's the Lord calling you to let you know that what I'm saying is true. Not really. But it is a good reminder to mute your phone. Okay. Now listen, if this idea kind of makes you scratch your head, and I understand why, because let's face it, there's, there's dozens of you know, guys on television, and they, they spin these intricate theories, and it sounds a lot, lot more educated than what I just told you. But listen, remember, the simplest solution is often what? The right solution. Occam's razor, Right? I love the Occam, those of you who are injured. you got to love that, right? And, and the simplest solution is just take Jesus at his word. We live in the last days. Peter says we live in the last days. His kingdom's here. Now, as mind-bending as that truth is, awesome it is, here's an, uh, an equally awesome one. Because it's now how do we apply that truth to our lives? And this is what I want to put before you as we kind of conclude this morning. That biblical community is indispensable to kingdom growth. I mean, let's think about what's happened here. The king comes. It doesn't go exactly how the Israelites thought it would go. He ends up dying on a cross and then being raised from the dead. But you remember, before he ascends to the Father, he turns to his disciples and he says, all right, I am going away. I'm going to come back one day. But between now and then, you have all of my authority. Go and make disciples. Teach them to obey everything that I have taught you, and baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the king gives marching orders to those who are in his kingdom. And he says, go and make disciples. And immediately you see this happening. It starts in Jerusalem where there's this group of people and they meet together corporately at the temple and the patio of the temple that's large enough for them to worship together and hear the apostles teach and preach. But throughout the week, they are broken apart and they meet together in individual homes where they discuss what they heard the apostles teach them. And they break bread because if you're going to be a Christian, you should eat with each other, right? And, and they, have, they enjoy community with one another, biblical community. Acts chapter 2. It starts in Jerusalem, and then you see a few going here and there. A few get put over in Antioch, and some are over in Asia Minor, and it begins to spread in these little communities of believers, many of them much smaller than some of our own covenant groups. That's all there is in a city filled with those who reject Christ but just a handful of believers who are living in community with one another begin to affect their community, their neighborhood, and ultimately their city. Within a few hundred years, the Roman Empire doesn't know what hit it. 
Because Christians living in biblical community, remember, biblical community, being Jesus to one another, expressing the life and the message of Christ to one another and to those who need him. This is biblical community. And look what happens here. I mean, think about it, church. Why isn't the entire world like the Sudan or Liberia? Why isn't the whole world like Afghanistan? It's because the king came and inaugurated the kingdom. Ladies, little girls being born all around the world today, why are they not thrown out into the gutters like they were in the Roman Empire and the empires before the Romans? Why aren't the disabled children taken up to the hillside to be eaten by the wolves and the wild dogs? Ladies, why do you today believe that you have a soul? Because they didn't believe it 2,000 years ago. Women, it was taught that women didn't have a soul. And you certainly couldn't be educated and learn how to read and have productive lives. You were a baby-making machine. That's what you were. How has that all changed to where you see your true worth is equal to men because we're all created in the image? How has that happened? Because the king came and he inaugurated the kingdom. I mean, why is it today that we have medicine and knowledge that has advanced from the superstitious to the scientific because the king came and he inaugurated the kingdom. Why is slavery banished all around the world? In most places, I mean, I'm sure there's a couple of places where it hasn't, but ideally, why has slavery been banished around the world? And even those who still practice it are pariah in our world today. Why is that? Because the king came. Why are the elderly, those of you who are AARP members, why is it that you're now not pushed out into the cold or into Florida, the heat? <laughs> and all of your possessions divided up among the rest of the village or the tribe or the town, and you're left to your own to die. Why is it no longer like that? Because it was like that for centuries. It's because the king came and the kingdom was inaugurated. Why was the oppression of the the, the Pharisees, the Romans, the Mongols, the Islamists, the slave traders, the sex traffickers, the child abusers, the Third Reich, and the, and the church itself, when it got corrupted with sin and evil, why is all of that oppression and evil seen for the sinful wickedness that it is, even by people who don't follow the king? It's because the king came and he inaugurated the kingdom. How is it possible that almost half of all Christians and followers of Jesus who have ever lived are alive right now in the 21st century? Did you know that? How is that possible? It's because the king came and he inaugurated his kingdom and he's been growing his kingdom through the centuries, through biblical community, his kingdom people, at an exponential rate. And it started small. Remember, he said that's how it was going to start, like a mustard seed that would be planted, the tiniest of seeds, but in time, it grows up to be a massive plant that gives shade, or the, the, the analogy I like, a little yeast, because I like to cook. 
Put a little bit of yeast into that dough. A big batch of dough, a little bit of yeast. But what happens to that batch of dough in time? It's consumed by the yeast. And that's what he's been doing through the ages. He came and he, through his kingdom people, he's, who have been living in community with each other, he has grown the kingdom. I mean, think about the power of our king. Did you know 100 years ago, Presbyterian missionaries went into Korea and China. China, for example, most estimates 100 years ago, after about 20 years of their work, there was around, 30 years of their work, there was around a million professing Christians in China. Boston University did an extensive study, has been doing it for years, and in February of 2023, just a few months ago, they released a report that says in China today, even with all of the oppression of a godless evil atheistic, communistic government that they have, that today they count 100 million Christians in China. More than the United States. How is it that by 2030, the continent of Africa, within the last 20, 25 years, will have gone from less than 100 million Christians to over 900 million who profess to follow Jesus Christ? How is that possible? It's because the king has inaugurated his kingdom and he is growing it through his people and it's through the people who are living out the gospel in community with one another. That's how it started in Jerusalem. That's how it affected Rome. That's how it changes our world today. And by the way, church, that's the hope for Palm Bay. And that's the hope for Brevard County. And that's the hope for the violent neighborhoods of our major cities that are such sad sights to see. And the breakdown that has occurred in our society and civilization. I got news for you. A Democrat and a Republican are not going to fix these problems in our society. Only the king can fix these problems. Only the king working through the king's people who are living out biblical community will solve these problems. How can I say that? Because he did it 2,000 years ago. He's done it in some of the most violent nations of this world, who for centuries and decades were at the basis levels of paganism and barbarism, including cannibalism. And when the gospel comes in with people who are living it out in power and a service to their king, the society is changed by God's people. The biblical community we enjoy, it's just a foretaste of the eternal kingdom community that's pictured here in Micah 4. He says in verse 1 that people will flow into it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that may, we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And in biblical community, when we're gathered together, we get a little taste of the king and his kingdom. But what power is present in just a little taste of the gospel? What power? What ability to affect everything? So Friday night, right, Ben? Friday night, 
I made a pot of shrimp gumbo. And it was good. <laughs> we went back for seconds. You know. My second bowl, I grabbed the cayenne out of the, because I, I intentionally didn't put, you know, cayenne and different stuff in there because MJ hurts his mouth, that kind of thing. So I grabbed some cayenne, and I, I sprinkled what I thought was just a little bit of cayenne <laughs> in that second bowl. And it was still just a little bit. But the power of a little bit of cayenne to completely transform that delicious bowl of gumbo into something that will scorch your taste buds is incredible, right? You know what I mean. But church, that's the power of the gospel. Us just having a little taste of the gospel transforms us so that our gospel community, biblical community, becomes attractive to those who need Jesus. When we get just a little taste of the gospel in community with one another, our whole understanding of the world changes. We see the world and ourselves from the perspective of the gospel. I appreciated the words of Paul Tripp this week when he said, no one ever obeys their way into God's grace. How many of you agree with that? Do you know why you agree with that? The power of the gospel. Because in your natural state as a human being, we don't think that way. We don't believe that way. But that's what the gospel has done to us. It's changed our perspective on ourselves where we understand our sinfulness is so deep. We can never obey and earn God's grace. And we can never work our way into heaven and do enough good deeds but as great as our sin is, even greater is the grace of God and his willingness to forgive us and to redeem us from all of our sins, no matter how egregious and gross they may be. Just a little taste of the gospel changes our perspective. Just a little bit of the gospel's power in our lives begins to transform us so that the fruit of the Spirit becomes our reality Love and joy and peace and long-suffering and patience and gentleness and goodness and faith. Does our world not need to see that every single day? How badly does our world need gentleness, goodness, mercy, patience, love, faith, hope? See, that's, that's what is so compelling to a lost and dying world. It's not our building is wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. I can't wait to worship in it. But ultimately, it's just a building. It's just a facility. It's not the beauty of the facility that's going to change the lives of the people in Palm Bay. It's the people who are in that facility, being in biblical community, worshiping God joyfully together, serving him joyfully for his glory alone that will change this community. And that's a vision I think that we can all get behind. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us this kind of encouragement from a prophet who was facing discouraging times. Lord, just as you were in control of events in 700 BC, you're in control of events here in 2023. 
You're sovereign over it all. This is your kingdom. Would you grow your kingdom through us? Lord, would you start with the person here this morning who is yet to acknowledge their sinfulness and inability to earn their way into your grace? Lord, would you give them eyes that see that the only path to eternal life and to your glorious kingdom is through the King, Jesus. They need to kneel to him, give their allegiance to him, give them hearts and eyes that see this need. And for those of us who follow you, King Jesus, help us this week to serve you well for your glory and for the growth of your kingdom. In your name, I ask these things. Amen.